Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, well, I wonder how you went with the memory verse uh, from last week, from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, I wonder if you can say it with me, Ephesians 1 verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, not bad. Um, after verse 3, at the start of the passage, verses 4 through 14, uh, outlined six wonderful blessings uh, that God has bestowed on us. Uh, he has made us holy and blameless adopted us to sonship, forgiven us our sins, enabled us to know his will, made us for the praise of his glory, and given us the deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. The question that we got to at the end of last week was, well, how should we respond? Uh, what, what next? Part of the answer was actually back in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, 
uh, that very first word there, praise. Uh, Praise be to God. Praise him for the spiritual blessings that are always ours in Christ, uh, regardless of our particular circumstances, which, if truth be told, can be really awful at times. I hope Ephesians 1 verse 3 was a powerful and encouraging reminder for you in this week gone by, whatever happened. It certainly was for me. But the second part of chapter 1, Paul goes on to give a slightly different response or an additional response. You see it begins in verse 15 uh, with, for this reason, for this reason. Uh, and we're going to see what that's all about in the rest of today's passage. As we begin, I want to ask the question that I think goes to the very heart of what this passage is about, and I've printed it there on your handout so that you can see it. The question there, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? I want you to be honest about this, just in the quiet of your own mind as you reflect on your answer to that question. What do you pray for? Be honest. Is it ridiculously big? Or actually, is it embarrassingly small? Or maybe you don't pray. Maybe you used to pray, but you've given up praying. If so, I wonder why. Maybe it's because, actually, at the moment, you don't think you need to. You feel in control. Things are pretty good at this point in time. Or maybe you stop praying because you're not sure that God really wants to hear your prayers, given how you've lived or how you're living at this present time. Perhaps if you stop praying, the reason is because it's, to be blunt, it's a, it's a self-protective defence mechanism. You stop praying to avoid disappointment because God might not answer you in the way that you want, in the timing that you want. Well, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul is going to model three prayers, three prayers to respond to in God's incredible blessings of us in Christ. And to be frank, they're probably not the prayers that we are expecting. What I'm going to do this morning is just look at each of them, try and draw out a couple of practical implications, because what they do is they teach us about our God who is rich in mercy, and that changes everything. Well, look with me there at uh, point one, prayer number one, verses 15 and 16. Pick it up in verse 15 with me. Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, Paul's first response is a thanksgiving prayer, a prayer for the Ephesians uh, to whom he is writing. Uh, You see two particular reasons there in verse 15 why he wants to give thanks. The first is because of their faith in the Lord Jesus And the second is because of their love for all God's people. Uh, Those two things that he prays for, you might say they are both vertical and horizontal. The vertical, their faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, their trust in Jesus for all those spiritual blessings that are ours in him. Uh, But likewise, Paul gives thanks for the horizontal, for their love for all of God's people. I could say a lot about these two verses. I could talk about how the vertical always shapes the horizontal, how our relationship with God always affects the way in which we treat other people. I could talk about how faith in Jesus is not just as our saviour, 
although he is that. We saw that back in verse 7, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Actually, our faith in Jesus is not just as our saviour, it's also as our Lord. Jesus is the one for whom we live each day. Because he doesn't just save us from our sins, he saves us for his service. Uh, But instead, uh, what I just want to point out from verses 15 and 16 is that when Paul says, giving thanks for you, it's really a shorthand for giving thanks to God for you. Not just giving thanks for you, but giving thanks to God for you. That is, Paul is not just being generically grateful for the Ephesians, rather he's being specifically thankful to God specifically thankful to someone. And it's important to tell that difference, I think, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if you're just a generically grateful person, inevitably that leads you to fixate on the blessings themselves, on the reasons why uh, you have to be full of gratitude. Whereas Paul's encouraging us to be specifically thankful to someone, to fix our eyes on the one who gives us so much in such abundance. And part of the reason why that's important is because if you have no one to thank specifically, if you're just generically grateful, uh, you're effectively saying, all my blessings are a reward for my hard work. Uh, Or my good fortune is actually no more than good luck. Of course, the problem is that when good luck runs out, you won't be able to discern anything good. Uh, And yet, as we know, Paul will insist in Romans 8, God does work in all things for the good of those who love him. Now, I think this distinction between being just a generically grateful person as opposed to someone who specifically thanks someone, I I suspect that's the reason why, in Australia at least, um, a national day of thanksgiving has never really taken off. Because actually, for most Australians, we don't really have someone to thank for all the goodness in our lives. Now, in a moment, Paul's going to provide an antidote to that kind of idolatry. And to be frank, that's what it is. If you're just a generically grateful person, it's really just idolatry. It's loving the gifts while ignoring the one who gives everything to us. It's living for created things without worshipping the Creator. But before I get there, uh, I just want to reflect on the fact that all of us, I think, are so greatly encouraged by stories of the faith and love of other people. We're so greatly encouraged when we hear stories of others who are growing in their faith in the Lord Jesus and in their love for all people. I mean, I think that's what moves us to thankful prayer to God in the same way as apparently it does for Paul with respect to the Ephesians. Take the vertical, for example. A member of our 9am congregation, Julia Walton, uh, she is in the last stages of a two-year battle with, with cancer. And yet, she is about to finally fulfil her dream of meeting Jesus. And all those who've been able to see her in the last week or so, they report how she is rejoicing rejoicing because of her faith in the Lord Jesus. There's the vertical. Maybe it's to do with the horizontal is what encourages us. Uh, Glenn, at our 5pm congregation, 
Uh, Glenn's a man in his 60s who is passionate about encouraging younger blokes in Christ to stand together to encourage each other to be witnesses for Jesus in their workforces, in their homes, wherever God puts them. It's an example of love for all God's people. And actually, as a side note, at a bigger picture, as I reflect on our whole church, um, my deep thankfulness to God is for our church and, um, and our response to COVID over these last couple of years. Um, you know, our response hasn't been perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but overall, I think it's been pretty good. I know that we haven't always agreed with everyone else about their particular choices or decisions, but that disagreement has never been divisive or disrespectful, certainly compared with our society at large. I guess if I were to ask a practical question, one of application, it would be this, what might you do to find out more stories of these from our church family that it might move you to be thankful to God? What could you do to be encouraged by such things? Well, here's my hint. My hint would be just to start by sharing them with each other. Like, you don't need me to tell you to do that. Because don't you think that others would love to hear such stories as much as you do? Well, Paul's first prayer is to thank God for the Ephesians, for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all his people. He then goes on with two more specific prayer requests for the Ephesians, one in verse 17 and the other in verses 18 through 23. So follow along with me. We're now to verse 17 and Paul's second prayer. Pick it up in verse 17. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Uh, the way, according to Paul, to be specifically thankful to God, uh, beyond just generically grateful, is to better know the one who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the best way to know him better, uh, this is not rocket science, the best way to get to know him better is to ask himself, ask him to make himself known to us. It's to pray, God, reveal more of yourself to me because I want to know you more. And I want to know you more deeply and intimately and profoundly. Now, what gives us the confidence to pray what is a very bold prayer of God is our conviction that actually God really, really, really wants to be known by us. Back in verse 9 we saw, He has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His pleasure. Pray, God, show me more of you. This is a prayer that God longs to answer. Well, a couple of comments about verse 17. Firstly, when Paul prays, may God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, may God give you the spirit of revelation, it's another reminder of our dependence on him and our dependence on his generosity and his grace. That is, we don't earn his favour, it's something that he gives and he gives it freely, as we'll see more in chapter 2. But the other thing to notice from verse 17 is that the way God enables us to get to know him better is by him giving us his spirit of wisdom and revelation. His spirit of wisdom and revelation. 
Let me just say a couple of things about that. Uh, firstly, uh, verse 17, I think, models a wonderful prayer that is profoundly Trinitarian. You see that there, don't you? Verse 17. I ask that the glorious Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You see Father, Son and Spirit all in just one verse. That's, of course, the reason why we said the Athanasian Creed at the start of this talk. But I think more importantly, when Paul says... I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul is not saying, well, that's because you don't have the spirit yet. Uh, Actually, back in verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So when Paul prays that God may give you more, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, it's not because you don't have it yet. Rather, Paul is just pointing out that the more God's spirit of wisdom and revelation is at work in you, the better we will know him. It's kind of like when we say, after someone has left or departed, that so-and-so's spirit lives on in us. Um, I think that's just a very tiny hint or glimpse of what's going on here. Paul is saying, if God's spirit is in us, we will come to know him better. Now, of course, that process of getting to know God better, well, that's not instant. There's no quick fix. It's an ongoing, lifelong pursuit. It takes time. It's about more than just reciting the creed once a decade. It's about more than practicing a new spiritual technique or even memorizing formulas. Although it seems to me that actually memorising the prayer to pray would be a good start. And so that's why I've chosen this week's memory verse. So if you grab the card, I'm going to ask you to say it with me. This is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. This is this week's memory verse. Chapter 1 verse 17 together. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Uh, one other thought in terms of practical uh, application, uh, you'll see it printed there on the left-hand side of your handout. Uh, most weeks I try and give a recommended reading, something that you, a book you might read, a podcast to listen to, maybe an article. Um, that's because there's only so much we can cover on a Sunday. Uh, this week's recommended reading um, is J.I. Packer's very famous book, Knowing God. This is my copy. Now, the reason why I picked this is because, actually, I know a number of you, and I know a number of you own this book, although, can I say, I suspect fewer of us have actually ever got around to reading it. Um, I hear some chuckles and smirks at this point because, yes, this is one of the ones that constantly being encouraged to read. Look, it's a great book because it's 20 chapters long. Each chapter just focuses on a different attribute of God, of what God is like. And so it seems to me that if you're serious about your prayer, God, I want to know you better, this is a pretty good starting point. Actually, I looked at my calendar. I discovered that if I start this week and I read one chapter a week, I will finish just around about Christmas time. And I reckon if you do that by the end of this year, there's a pretty good chance that you will know him a little more. Well, in verse 17, Paul is reminding us that the key to the Christian life is knowing the one who blesses us with every spiritual blessing. It's a prayer for every believer, and no matter their circumstances. In fact, it's a prayer that's even more important 
in tough times, in adversity. So, given my earlier exhortation, I thought I'd encourage you with another story of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all his people. Earlier this year, I talked about a new believer at 7pm, a young man by the name of Varun. He came to faith in the Lord Jesus uh, back in term one. Uh, Each week ever since, uh, Varun and I have met one-to-one for an hour to read the Bible and to pray together, on Tuesdays actually. Uh, This week in our catch-up, Varun was sharing with me, uh, he didn't use this language, but as I thought about it afterwards, of both his growing faith in the Lord Jesus and his love for all God's people. His growing faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, he talked about just how comforted he is to know that he is redeemed by Christ's blood that his sins are forgiven in Jesus. And of his growing love for all God's people, well, actually, Varun was telling me that um, every morning on Tuesday when he gets up, he prays for his Tuesday night growth group that he'll be seeing later that evening. Part of the reason I want to tell you about him is because, to be honest, he's facing some pretty big challenges. There are some hard times that lie ahead for him. Uh, He's planning to be baptised in October at Commitment Sunday, which will be terrific. The question he's trying to work through at the moment is, how does he share that with his family back home in their Muslim country? And he's looking for work. And if he doesn't find any soon, he'll have to leave because of visa requirements. But the thing that he said is that he's not particularly worried because each day he gets to know him better. He gets to know God better. Uh, This is the best hour of my week. Apologies if I had a meeting with you this week, um, but (laughs) this really is the best hour of my week because like Paul with the Ephesians, I cannot stop giving thanks to God for him. Well, come with me to the third and final prayer. It's on the right-hand side of your handout. Uh, Pick it up in verses 18 and we'll go through to verse 23. Final prayer. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, go back to verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And now that's an unusual metaphor, isn't it? I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. It's a bit unusual, isn't it? Where your eyes, they're on your head, they're not on your heart. Um, what would they see from inside you? Um, I guess what Paul is saying here is that he wants us not just to see things better, he wants us to be transformed and uplifted in our core, in our inmost being. And so his third prayer is for three different ways in which we might better know God. 
Now, we're just going to linger on each of these for a moment because they're truly delightful and wonderful. I've listed them there for you on your handout, on the right-hand side. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, firstly, the hope to which he has called you, secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and thirdly, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Firstly, the hope to which he has called you. Notice what Paul says here. I pray that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He doesn't say, I pray that you may know the hope which you are holding to. He actually says the hope to which he has called you. Because Paul is trying, I think, to emphasise less our hope, the quality of our convictions, which, quite frankly, are pretty fickle at times. Rather, he's trying to emphasise the one in whom we have our hope because he is trustworthy. He always keeps his promises. Uh, For that reason, actually, later this year, after this series, we're going to spend a few weeks uh, thinking about uh, the end times and how it is that we have a confidence in the hope in what God will still do. So the first thing that he wants us to know is the hope to which he's called you. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now that phrase, glorious inheritance, uh, I think Paul's chosen that deliberately. It's meant to remind us of things he's already said. Back in verse 17, he talked about a glorious father who gives a glorious inheritance. And in fact, back in verse 14, uh, that inheritance was referred to as the gift of the Holy Spirit all of which, once again, reminds us of every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. But I guess the other thing to notice about this glorious inheritance and how rich it is, is that uh, there, um, verse uh, 18, it's in his holy people. It's in his holy people. This inheritance, it is in his holy people. Paul is reminding us that our inheritance, it's collective, it is communal, it is not just individual. What God has for me is not just mine, it is ours. What I have as a disciple of Christ, I only have in conjunction with all God's people. And that means that unless you are with his people, you are missing out on what God has in store for us. Why would you ever go it alone as a believer? This idea of God's whole people, of church, we're going to come back to in just a moment... But look thirdly then at what it is that Paul wants us to know. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The third thing there, his incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power for us who believe. I just want to draw your attention to the way in which Paul describes God's power. He says it's power for us who believe. God's power is not for everyone, particularly, if I can put it this way, if they refuse his help. I'm often intrigued by unbelievers who tell me that they cry out to God in the midst of a crisis. They're crying out to a God they don't actually believe in. It's true, God does show grace to all. But really, why would you expect him to do so? And are you really entitled to be bitter if he doesn't intervene? If the way in which you have treated him is like a genie in a bottle, you know, something that you summon in an emergency, but you put it back on the shelf the rest of the time. 
to be frank, I think sometimes that could be said not just of unbelievers, that could be said of Christians as well. Conversely, if you do believe, if you do have faith in the Lord Jesus and if you do call on him, then Paul says you will know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So here's my other comment. Uh, What kind of power is on view? What kind of power does Paul say God has for those who believe? This is not a hard question. It's his incomparably great power. Now, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I couldn't resist. It's unprecedented, God's power, is it not? Look at how Paul will describe what God uses that power for in the following verses. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about God's power as Christians, normally we want to talk about God's power in creation. And that's a good thing to do, right? God, he creates everything from nothing by a word. That is pretty powerful. If you're one of the Ephesians reading this letter, at this point you're probably thinking, oh yeah, we saw some amazing displays of power when Paul was in Ephesus. We heard this reading last week, you recall? When Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, uh, we heard that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs that, had, that Paul had touched, um, when they were given to sick people, they were miraculously healed. Now that's pretty extraordinary power as well. But the thing is, in Ephesians 1, the incomparably great power that Paul is referring to is the power seen in Christ. And you see that in three ways in the last part of the chapter. You see it in Christ's resurrection, you see it in Christ's exaltation, and you see it in Christ's dominion and his rule. Pick it up again, halfway through verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, that's his resurrection, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. That's Christ's ascension. And thirdly, verse 22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's Christ's dominion and rule. Here's how we see God's incomparably great power. It's seen in Christ. In, on your handout there firstly, his resurrection. This is the event in human history that changes everything. When we see it in Christ's exaltation, his exaltation and ascension to the heavenly realms where we're told he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of supreme honour and glory. I was trying to imagine what that would be like, how to describe what it means for Christ to be at the right hand of the Father and actually um, this week I was remembering um, back to last November when um, at my commissioning as a senior pastor of this church Um, I stood at the front in this spot and everything that you honoured me with as Wendy stood alongside me, you honoured her as well. Now, I realise that's a limited analogy. I know I'm not God, okay? So I understand that. But it's that sense of Christ's exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Here is a display of the Father's power. And the third way, in the future actually, is God's dominion and rule, in Christ's dominion and rule, when Jesus returns and all things are placed under his feet. 
and he is head over everything for the church. And the thing is, though we're not there yet, when we are, it will be an awesome display of God's incomparably great power for us who believe. So let me ask, don't you want some of that power? Doesn't the knowledge that you already have that power in Christ affect the way in which you feel about the week ahead with all of its challenges and trials and tribulations? How exciting it is for us to call on him today to use his incomparably great power, how? That we might know him better in this week ahead. Well, in verse 18, Paul talked about the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. In his holy people. I said this is a reference to church, and I want to come back to this just briefly as we conclude. When Paul says in verse 22 that Jesus is appointed head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, clearly Paul is describing something bigger and more magnificent than just us here in this church, at Trinity Church Adelaide. What Paul is describing in Ephesians 1 is what theologians call, and I've given it there for you on your handout, he's describing the church universal, not just the local church. He's describing the church universal, the great gathering of believers from throughout history, across time and space, throughout the ages. And if that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1, well, there's a couple of final applications that I might draw. The first is that because you and I belong to the church universal, because you and I as believers, we belong to the church universal, it means you are always free to leave this particular church. Because Christ is head over his church wherever you go. You often hear me saying, everyone leaves Trinity eventually. What we want is to send you on knowing him better when you go. And that means that we will never be a church that pressures you to stay. We will never say things to you like, we need you here. Because any church that says that probably won't let you go willingly. You know, the theological reason why we're not devastated when beloved members of our church family leave us and go church planting, well, it's because we belong to the church universal. And one day, when God's incomparably great power is finally and fully revealed and when Jesus returns, we will stand together as one under his headship and his lordship. At the same time, here's the other practical comment. Because we also belong to the local church, this is why we'd love you to stay. And the reason for that is because, in the end, the local church best imitates Christ's headship in eternity. The local church best imitates Christ's Lord headship in eternity, even if it's never quite complete in this earthly realm, in this present time. Now again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you must belong to this local church, but you must belong to a local church. 
And to be even more specific, you must belong to one local church. Now, if that happens to be ours, then in our setup, I want to say that means belong to one gathering at 9 or 10.30 or 5 or 7. Please don't bounce around from week to week, depending on how busy you happen to be on that Sunday with either social activities or study. I know that the fact that we have multiple gatherings on a Sunday is a real blessing for some, particularly for shift workers amongst us. But that's a last resort. And part of the reason for that is because actually in a gathering, we are able to get to know others properly that we might give thanks to God for them. Well, back to my opening question. What do you pray for? What do you pray for? Is what we've seen in Ephesians 1, is this how you pray for yourself and for others? To pray that you might know him better and know his incomparably great power for us who believe. What I'm going to do as we conclude is to give you just a couple of minutes, like last week, to turn to the person next to you and you'll see the discussion question at the bottom. The discussion question for this week, it's a little bit harder. The question is, what could motivate you to want to pray these three prayers? And on the other hand, what might hinder? What could motivate you to want to pray these three prayers and what might hinder? I'm going to give you just two minutes, turn to the person next to you, share together and then I'll close for us in prayer. Over to you.